Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Victor Davis Hanson is the star of this show, and he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor has an official website. It's known, well, it's called, its name is The Blade of Perseus. Its web address is victorhanson.com. You should be subscribing. And I'll tell you about that a little later. And by the way, the happy home on the internet of this podcast is John Solomon's justthenews.com. Victor, um, a lot of California stuff uh, on the agenda for today's uh, this particular episode. Uh, but uh, we're going to begin with some uh, news that has just broken about Joe Biden um, speaking in West Hartford, Connecticut today, and just more freaking crazy talk from a man who who uh, should uh, be uh, from a man who has his finger on the button, <laughs> <laughs> finger, on the, finger on the button. And he, he should be taking a nap uh, in the basement and not being the leader of the free world. But we get your thoughts about this craziness. And then, Victor, craziness in California, uh, the political powers of be trying just to turn the state totally officially into a union stronghold streets of San Francisco. We'll talk about that. All that after these important messages. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So Victor, you and I had talked on our last podcast about, you know, some of the crazy more recent utterances of Joe Biden. But today, as we're recording, news came up from the Daily Mail and um, it's it's just you know, typical Joe uh, he's he's in West Hartford giving a speech today, this afternoon. Headline, God save the queen, man. Babbling Biden jokes about being 110 and says 
don't make me a dog-faced lying pony soldier during bizarre gun control speech. And then he struggles with the stage exit as usual. Where do I go? Which way do I go? He just, I don't know, Victor, a little bit of me, I'm ashamed of laughing at, at a man who's clearly the onset of dementia or, or, you know, this, this is not the beginning of dementia. This is the full fledged and it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse because I've had relatives that have had it and I've watched it firsthand and it's, it increases, not, as I say, not arithmetically, it gets, gets double the day before, quadruple the day before. It just, it's sad. I lived with my grandmother, you know, and I I took care of her for a whole summer, just me. And she was uh, at that point in 1980, she was born, she was 90 and she was not cognizant. So she would say to me, I'm going outside to wait for the stage. Well, there was a stage here when the house was built and I'd, and I'd run after her. And then she'd say, well, who are you? You know, are you the stage driver and where are the horses? And, wow. it, and wow. it, I, and she was a very sweet, uh, I have nothing but wonderful yeah. memories of it. It was very tragic. And we all have a rendezvous, I suppose, maybe with this, but he should not be the president of the United States. And the people who knew this and used him, including his wife, to stop Donald Trump and stop whatever they thought they were stopping endangered this country. The left went crazy when Donald Trump said he had a bigger nuclear button than Kim Jong-un. Remember that? But that was a deliberate, calibrated uh, warning to him not to keep threatening the West Coast. And he stopped threatening. This is scary. It really is. And this is well aside from the fact that he is now under allegation of receiving himself $5 million from people connected to the Ukrainian government in some fashion, while he is governing our policy and the degree to which we're sending massive shipments to Ukraine. But so there's so many issues here. And he's so, you know, the last cat podcast, I mean, everybody listening out there, whether you're a truck driver or you're a carpenter, a plumber, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever your job is, if you were in your job today and you saw somebody and you gave her a hug and as you pulled your hands away, you touched the sides of her breast like Joe Biden did, what would happen to you? Sayonara. What would happen happen to you if you're a teacher and you have to go into your uh, section meeting and you said, I'm a line dog-faced pony soldier, I'm 110, God save the queen what would people do? They would, you know what I mean? They would just, and then if, yeah. when it was, the meeting was over and you didn't know where to go. So you wouldn't allow that because it wouldn't be professional. It wouldn't be helpful. It'd be dangerous. So is the president of the United States then just a ceremonial position that doesn't matter, but he should be removed. He should be removed immediately. And they should invoke the 25th Amendment. And I don't understand why they don't. I, I I understand they have nobody else because the party has gone so far left that even a Bill Clinton type centrist, Bill Clinton's not a centrist anymore. There's nobody left. They've destroyed a whole generation of Democrats. But and then to, as as projectionists, they say, well, the Republican Party is unrecognizable. That's only unrecognizable because you know that you're unrecognizable and you project that onto people. But my God, it's scary. And 
the weird thing is we've got some weird rendezvous ahead because he has a tendency. Um, he has certain things that come out when people have Alzheimer's, the cognitive right. shields or, uh, you know, what I don't want the cognitive uh, shield that shields you from doing things or the protection or the veneer of respectability. They, they, it's all gone. Yeah. And you get. You get pure Joe Biden, and we saw saw that with these racial outbursts he's done, and we see it with the sexuality, the breathing on girls' hair, whispering, the weird jokes when he gives a speech. Oh, look at that young girl! You're cute. How old are you? And this, and then there's just bizarre things like this, and it's going to get worse. And I, I've always said that he was not going to finish out his term, and I don't think he will. How he will end his presidency will depend on again his utility to the Democratic Party. Yeah, I don't Our think life. even Nos Nostradamus would have predicted this, uh, Victor. This is a really bad, bad scene for our country. Well, let's what talk you, about what do you, what do you think ahead. the Chinese? So you're in China right now in Qi, and you're thinking you yeah. your advisors around. They're saying, well, you know, it's very hard to go across the South China Sea to get in Taiwan. And nobody's ever quite had an amphibious, and they've got a lot of wherewithal in their group. And then the next person says, yeah, but they've emptied all their arsenals under. They've sent a million artillery shells to Ukraine. They don't have any. And another next guy goes, they don't have any javelin missiles. It's going to take them five years. They don't have any more shore-to-shore missiles or ship-to-shore. They're gone. So, and then when are you ever going to get a present like this? Think about it. Right. He, what's he going to do? He de, he doesn't know where he is. If there's a next election, you're going to get Trump or DeSantis and it's game over. They're going to get tough. There's not going to be any more balloon tests. There's not going to be any dressing down their diplomats in Anchorage. There's not going to be any more pride flags and humiliating withdrawals from Afghanistan type scenarios. We can't keep, you know, buzzing their planes and trying to ram their ships because they'll sink one of them. So when are we ever going to get an opportunity like this again? So there's always risk. United States is a big power, but it's run by complete non-compost mentis, yeah. uh, failed mind. And we better move now. And I think that's a serious discussion that's going on right now. Victor, by the way, you mentioned pride flag. I, I didn't tell you about this in advance, but it just came to me, you know, um, at that White House ceremony that we which we talked about on a previous podcast, uh, the the. Uh, you know, pride celebration, the pride flag was hung illegally, let's put it that way, relative to the American flag. The American flag being disrespected at the White House is so, like the American flag. That's the thing we pledge allegiance to, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag. Uh, I'm, I, have to, uh, I have to correct you. Okay. That's ahead. the flag we kneel down on one knee when it's flying during the national anthem. That's oh, the true. thing we turn yes. our backs on. It's... That explains the pride flag. If we didn't do that with our flag and allow that, those timid corporate bosses in the NFL, or, right. or the, then we wouldn't have a pride flag having equal status. But and that's one problem. The other problem is that once you demonize the majority as culpable for all the sins that of the past or anything you don't like in the present or all your career goals that have been thwarted and you want to, uh, you know, remanufacture them or recalibrate them as somebody did this to you, then 
0.0001 has equal say over 99%. And that's what the pride flag is. And so it's, uh, and then they, they just took the word pride. Like nobody else has pride, only get transgender or gay people. Well, I thought it was one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, and yeah. uh, I'm waiting for lust month. Uh, if, if we can have yeah. that. Uh, but, uh, or, or gluttony month. Either one I'll pick. You know well, what's going to happen? You're going you're to have some, you know, continental don't tread on me snake flag, you know. There, people will put that flag up. And that's perfectly, that's much more patriotic than this thing. But you're going to see all, once the Democrats did this and they set these precedents, it, it reminds me of a great passage in the third book of Thucydides when he says, the problem with the Corsairan revolution is that once you destroy institutions and protocols that were there to protect everybody and you have power and you destroy them, when you come out of power, you're going to try to flee to those institutions and you've destroyed them, they're not going to be there. So mark my words, the Democrats are going to rue the day that they allowed these weird flags to be the same as the American flag. They're going to rue the day they got rid of the idea you don't impeach. You, they, they destroyed the idea that you don't impeach a president twice or as a private citizen or a 22-month hoax special counsel investigation or filibuster. That's all going to come back to haunt them. And they're really going to really, really, really going to regret the idea that a ex-president is sacrosanct or the leader of the opposition is sacrosanct. Barack Obama would be, be very careful because there's a lot of questions when he left office that you get an SOB Republican in there and he's going to say, you know what, they don't learn. The only thing they will learn is to indict one of their beloved icons for an infraction. And we'll see. And the Bidens are going to be in big trouble when they when they don't have Merrick Garland and the DOJ. And it's not going to be punitive or reciprocal. It's just going to be the law. And they broke the law and they know it. Right. And so you never want to destroy institutions that serve everybody for your own short term political gain, because it will come back to haunt you. Whether you're a dog face pony soldier or not. Hey, I still, I still, I look, you know, I, I tried to find that quote. I can't find it. I don't think it exists. I, I, is it's, it a from, it's, it's a composite. It's a mashup. I, I have a feeling. Is it I'm, from Ford Apache or she wore a yellow ribbon or where, what John Ford movies? I think from? there's a searcher's thing in here. I, I, I don't know why, but, um, We'll get we'll get well, to the bottom of it. Also, it may be, you know, when John Wayne in um, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon yes. visits, uh, visits the old chief, yeah. um, a pony that pony that walks and uh, uh, <laughs> we go hunt buffalo, kill me, you know, get drunk. I have a feeling there may be something. But there was, when there. He, he said it like in early 2020 and there was whole mini industry. Remember that? Of people, yeah. they call that in German, Quellenforschung, the, the search for the source, you know what I mean? Right. What, was, what was the original source of that? And nobody could find it. Yeah. Well, I think it's about, it's probably about three, three or four sources. One for each, one for every word in the phrase. All right. Victor. You know what? I just thought one last thing, you know, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I think I remember there was, he said it twice is what I'm saying. And uh, I think you're right. It came from, I, I know it came from John Ford, but it wasn't just, Dog lying, dog face, pony shoulder. That was added in. It was. You might be right. It was that guy in. Um, she wore a pony soldier, right? 
Yeah. And he, and he added the Biden trimmings to it. Well, sooner or later, he's going to tell us that he himself fought, fought at uh, Ford Apache along with uh, Henry Ford and, and uh, uh, not Henry Ford, Henry Fonda and John Wayne. All right, Victor, there's also lunacy in California, always is, but this is pretty serious. And we'll get to your thoughts on it right after these important messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, especially for our new listeners, uh, victorhanson.com. That's the Blade of Perseus, Victor's official website. You should visit uh, regularly, daily even, because frequently, I'd say two or three times a week, you will find an original piece that Victor has written exclusively for that website. You'll also find archives for these podcasts, Victor's appearances on other podcasts, radio shows, his books, other, other his writings at American Greatness, his syndicated column. But it's the exclusive, quote unquote, ultra pieces that are that um, j- there's a lot of them. They're terrific. And you need to subscribe in order to read them. So do subscribe. Five bucks uh, gets you in the door. It's f- discounted $50 for the year. That's at victorhanson.com. If you're on Facebook, by the way, check out VDH's Morning Cup and also maybe pay a visit to our friends at the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club. Very good people. If you're on Twitter, Victor's handle is at VD Hanson. So, Victor, um, my dear friend, I love Will Swaim. Will, uh, and I know you know Will. He runs the California Policy Center. Yeah, I met him. Which, I like him. Yeah, he's he's such a good dude. And California Policy Center is boy oh boy. They 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 punch above their weight, but you know, it's it's a tough it's a tough road to, to hoe. It's kind of always struck me as strange that California uh did not have as much of a conservative pushback and think tank as you find in other states. But there's Will. He's he's slogging away doing it at he's the president. And he's written a piece for National Review that's uh it's titled A Very California Coup. And uh, indulge, please, uh, to our listeners, just indulge this. Uh, Here's how it begins. For decades, California's government unions have bankrolled the campaigns of politicians who, once in office, return the favor, rubber stamping union union demands, no matter how extraordinary the results in education, 
fire safety, healthcare, infrastructure, housing, cost of living, taxes, and crime have been catastrophic. Now, state lawmakers are prepared to hand even more power to government union leaders. State Senator Tom Umberg's Senate Constitutional Amendment Number 7 would create a constitutional right to, quote, economic well-being, end quote, for government workers and would prohibit California state and local officials from taking any action, quote, that interferes with, negates, or diminishes the right of employees to organize and bargain collectively. I'll be finished this in a second. Lawyers representing public employees could argue, for example, that a decision to close a school and a failed program for the homeless or build a road with non-union labor would interfere with their union's constitutional protections. Uh, former state Senator John Morlock says democracy is gone if this passes. Victor may have been maybe gone already, but this is really, really freaking troubling. Your thoughts, my friend. That's Maoist cultural revolution. That's we're back in Maoist China, the 1960s. It's just surreal. And the Democratic Party, once again, realizes if it doesn't have all these institutions and it doesn't have the unions, and I don't mean the unions, the regular unions, the United Auto Workers, maybe, but most of the the old unions that we knew, the coal miners, the pipe fitters, the long, they don't exist anymore in the sense of powerful, big money. But they do have the government unions and they're, you know, the SEIU and those, those unions and they're huge and they're the biggest teachers unions and they're the biggest source of uh, income for Democrats and they don't dare cross them. So they give them whatever they want. And like every good idea that starts out to protect teachers or from imperious bosses, they they take it to the next step and they destroy it. The, the left does. They they have the on minus touch. Everything they touch turns to dross, and they've destroyed the whole idea of unions, and they've destroyed with it California. You know, I was driving today uh, from Palo Alto to Selma, and I was just doing one of my Homeric odysseys, just looking for my Cyclops and the Sirens and the Lystragonians <laughs> and Circe and Calypso, and they're all there. Yeah. You know, you're driving down, and all of a sudden, without warning, there's one lane as you're going over Pacheco Pass. Construction, nice time, commute time at 8 in the morning, and then you get on I-5, and there's just four lanes unchanged. And 60 years ago, twice the population, can't we spend $1 billion and make a six-lane highway when we're spending $50, $80 billion on a whole Stonehenge high-speed rail? No. So you get on that, that quote-unquote freeway, and it was the, main, the weirdest thing I ever saw. There was a whole line of trucks in the right lane, but they don't go at the same speeds, right? So Joe, entrepreneurial trucker, wants to go 70 when his radar says there's no cop. And the truck ahead of him is going, he just pulls over, right? And they all pull over to the left lane. So there was a caravan of left and right trucks. And that line of cars was backed up a half mile, going 40 miles an hour as they tried to accelerate. And I thought, wow, this is just dysfunctional. And then I stopped at a place to go to the restroom. And there's some crazy people, you know what I mean, on roadside stops in California. You got to be very careful. They're really nutty people. I don't know if they're on drugs. I don't know. 
but it's it's a tower of Babel. You got to be careful. The whole point I'm making is that the stuff that happens in California, whether it's the union stuff or the laws that legalize basically shoplifting, they're not just in isolation and they're not just episodic. They're starting to coalesce and you're starting to see the breakdown of basic society. That means driving. Uh, I filled up with gasoline, Joe Biden's gasoline today, $5, Jack, and 78 cents. Five seventy-eight, and that was if you buy regular. The uh, I think the highest octane was ninety-nine percent was six forty, and I went by in Palo Alto. I went by, and uh, a friend had told me it was almost seven dollars. So I went into a shopping center to get something to eat, and it was six ninety, six ninety a gallon in Palo Alto at this place, and so. You're starting to see things that just don't work anymore, whether it's crime or San Francisco. They destroyed the city in four years. It's very. And then you see a guy like uh, Gavin Newsom go into Sean Hannity and just flat out lie that he's a big. Ta he never raises taxes. He was the one that uh, institutionalized the 13.3 uh, income tax that was raised and was supposed to be temporary. And then he raised taxes as a mayor. He that's, it's just. It's just so chaotic. By the way, I, doesn't I didn't, work. Doesn't how did work. he perform on that, Victor? I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I know about it, and I and I heard that Hannity, you know, was friendly with him, or maybe not friends, he, but whatever. The he hell, was civil. He was nice, but you know, everybody says well, if I was interviewing him, I could have done a better job. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I would have really hammered him on all the things he said in the past because he basically is a very sly, glib politician. He's not very bright, but he's sly and he's glib. So his whole shtick right now is that he's as hard left as he can be, but he wants to put a very thin veneer that he is a Clinton 1990s conserv uh, new Democrat. So he says, you know, Donald Trump, I have no complaints about Donald Trump. Donald Trump worked well with me. He trashed Trump all the time. And then he'll say something. I, I, I'm not a tax raiser. I, I'm physically responsible. I stopped the 14 14% or something proposed tax. Well, oh, that's really big of you. You've got 13.3. You've got one of the highest sales taxes. And then, you know, he said property taxes are much higher in, in Florida. Well, yeah, because they don't have an income tax, but they still are not as high that would be that would make up for our income tax. And just because you have a lower rate in California, believe me, if you have a two million dollar assessment for your little cottage in Sunnyvale, it doesn't matter if it's one or three percent, you're going to pay a hell of a lot of property tax. And so he, he just can't. He's talking about the border. He wouldn't be candid. Uh, he doesn't seem to understand that you have a massive challenge when you have a state with 27 percent of the people were not born in the United States. You should have a Marshall Plan of civic education, assimilation, integration, Americanism. No, none of that. And L.A. is a wasteland, the downtown, all the work of the 90s, the restoring the L.A. downtown with these beautiful new buildings has been wasted. The Renaissance don't, don't, of San Francisco is destroyed. Hold, yeah, hold off on San Francisco because we're going to talk about that. I will time. say one thing, though, just in finishing. I have noticed that uh, when I went down 101 not too long ago, uh, 
that all the shopping centers on 280 or 101 in San Jose area, you know? Yeah. When you go drive by them, and I stopped a couple times to use the restroom or to get gas when I, they're packed. I mean, they're just packed. And I know what that's from. It has to be that people in San Francisco are not going to, they don't have anywhere to shop. Right. Because they, they closed that big shopping center not too far from San Francisco because of theft. And if you can't buy anything in San Francisco, where do you buy, you know, where do you go to Costco or where do you go to a, a discount big chain store? you got to go to San Jose. Which is and, which is over an hour away, yes? Uh, 45 minutes. Okay. It, can be, it can be an hour, absolutely. It can be an hour, over an hour. But it just shows you that very liberal people who created this don't want to live with the consequences. They'll go to San Jose. They used to make fun of San Jose. Oh, San Jose. I'd never live in San Jose. I live in, I live in Knob Hill. I live in Pacific Heights. I live in Presidio Heights. I would never live in San Jose. Well, now you're going to San Jose because at least has some semblance of working and your utopia was destroyed by your own ideology. Well, we've we've got a very interesting um, story to tell about San Francisco a little little later, but uh, in this uh, episode. But uh, before we get to that, Victor, is a, well, I guess we could stay in the area in one. Sense. Might as well, let, yeah. This crap is, that we're going to talk about now is coming out of um, Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm not going to read anything, but an Amazon delivery man goes to a house. He hears he's got he you know he's got uh, iPods in his ear, but he hears the uh, from the the ring bell say something. He thinks it's insulting him, the delivery man. He reports to Amazon that when he made try to make this delivery to this house, he was called a name. It doesn't say in the story a name, but you can just assume Amazon. So the, the resident is hooked into Alexis, Alexi, whatever. I don't have I don't have iPhones or any of that. And they shut off the resident's service based on the accusation of a racial complaint made by by the, the delivery man. Well, it just so happens that A, nobody was home. B, the um bell, you know, technology on the doorbell. It was is programmed to ask automatically, uh, may I be of help? Something like that. What do you want? Something like that. So it was no, nothing. No, you're an N-word or anything like that. The resident himself was a black guy, you know? So he so he, this is not so much about this incident, Victor, but it's about our increasing uh, living and hooked up through technology, but that Amazon would feel uh, privileged to turn off your power in your home based on an accusation with no evidence is, I don't know, I would say, I think it's a sign of the future, except the future is here right now, um, that you will be punished. You can be punished and you will be punished if you uh, cross some threshold that our tech gods in uh, Silicon Valley don't like. Who knows what's next? What if, what if you're... Your doorbell thing said something like, vote for Trump, you know? 
anyway, it, I've, I'm making a little light of it, but I think it's really uh, troubling, Victor. Your thoughts? Well, it's it's kind of uh, a, a futuristic, isn't it? Blending of intrusiveness, Orwellianism, high tech, political correctness that they can do this and there's not going to be any consequences. Right. And it's, it's contrary to the whole constitutional idea that you are innocent to proven guilty, except in the corporate world where I guess there's people in the corporate world, Jack, that are so terrified of their own shadow that they just work on the principles of innuendo. Right. So if, if they think somebody had said something wrong, then they they put into gear all the powers that they have. And because they're amoral people, they there's no lim- limit to the means to accomplish something. That's why I think one of the things we're, we're, we, we forget is that we went through this in the 1880s and 90s. And I'm not trying to demonize the so-called robber barons. Those guys did a lot of great things for this country, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. And the Henry for all those guys, they were men of action. But when Standard Oil had 90% of the oil market, it was vertically integrated. You had to break it up. And we haven't applied that to these people, Amazon or Google. or Google's got 90% of the searches. So they, they, they have unlimited wealth and unlimited power, and they exercise it in any way they can. And... They're, they're very successful at it because a Jeff Bez, Bezos or a Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or any of these guys will pose as men of the left. And they are humanitarians, the Bill Gateses of the world, and they worry about us. And under that veneer, they they just old fashioned monopolist and they get to, they get away with anything and they have the technological no wherewithal and the money to sort of, you know, run roughshod over individual rights, the Bill of Rights, anything they want. And there's not going to be any consequences because they have so much money. They play that weird two-step. When a Republican is in power, Amazon and these companies say, we're the kind of guys you like. We're the entrepreneurs. We're the free marketeers. We don't need to be regulated. When the left is in there, they said, don't regulate us. We give you all the money. It's all your money. So and they have each of these big you know Amazon has Facebook Twitter they all have somebody in DC who does outreach to you know the right and uh, you know people are people uh, people sell their ver- their beliefs for pennies on the dollar so uh, but, I mean it's getting to the point where if you're inside your house <laughs> they can control you we've yeah. talked we've talked about this before if you know, if you had this feeling, I know people are that you're visiting a town like 300 miles away from you and you you buy gas there or you're, you do some transaction and then the next day you get an ad from a, a business in that town or you, you buy on Amazon a neti pot and then the next day you get sinus 
vitamins or something that yeah. pop pop up in your screen. Well, it's it's just incredible. I'm sorry. Am I a lunatic? Do I believe the devices are listening? My wife and daughter, this is about two years ago, were having a conversation about Boston cream pie, right? And my but my daughter said something like Boston cream cake. And Sharon, my wife, said, no, and it's Boston cream pie, and let's find the recipe. So she goes on her phone and starts to type in you know, Boston, she was trying you're gonna type a Boston cream pie, B-O-S. By the time she was she didn't even have the T. And it automatically filled Boston cream cake, which is no such thing as Boston cream cake. But the freaking phone was listening. There's no question. I don't know. So, remember Cheryl, the, the, Cheryl, the Cheryl Atkinson, remember they thought she was crazy because her <laughs> computer the like it was the CIA or the FBI was listening to her on her on her computer. Yeah, and, I mean, and, uh, and absolutely. Who doesn't believe their air fryer if it's what, on what, the internet? What, will what it what explains this phenomenon? It's really weird, and I know that I've quoted him to death, but the poet Hesiod had a good point when he talked about moral regress and material progress. And my point is this: that these people, because they are more sophisticated. And they have iPhones and iPads and Apple Watches. And they say the people in 1930 could never do this, not understanding that each generation stands on the shoulders of the prior one. But they don't know anything about history. So they think that they were born from the head of Zeus as brilliant Einsteinian people. But nevertheless, they, they equate the fact that we're a technologically adept society within with superior uh, morality that's evolved to a higher level. So this transgendered stuff or, you know, not putting out forest fires or not cleaning up the forest or banning natural gas stoves, all of that is justified by the fact that that is a sign to them that they have a new morality that has advanced so much and they feel that it has advanced so much because our technology is advanced. So they think that we're much more sophisticated in our iPhones and we can do all these things with our iPads and we, the pings and all this. And therefore, because we can do that and people in 1940, 1960, 1990 couldn't, we're much better morally because how could we not be better if we, if we, we have better things and they don't understand there's a whole canon of philosophy and historical warning exemplar that suggests the wealthier you get and the more leisured you are and the more you build something like Nero's golden house it was you know pretty sophisticated the more likely you are to marry your horse if you're Caligula and that's what our Agalbus you know and they don't understand that at all and so in some ways if we had Petronius a novelist here he looked at this or Picasso and they looked at what's going on with Mulvaney or at the LA Dodgers, they would be perfectly, they would think it's perfectly logical that this society is so wealthy and leisure. This is exactly the symptomology you'd expect because human nature being what it is, you give people too much time in the day or they get too lazy or they right. get, they, the more that they get, the more they want and the more they feel victimized that they don't have what somebody else does. Yeah. We're an insatiable society. No, a great, a great general, Matthew Ridgway. He was the savior of Korea. They once asked him why he was for the draft, 
And, he, he, you know, he, I thought he would give, I was reading, I thought he would adduce all, it was in an interview, I think, and he asked him, it gives you more manpower and da-da-da-da and da-da-da-da-da and we have ready supply of manpower. We get all the youth together from different classes. All these are good reasons, you know, kind of the World War II movie where there's the Catholic guy, there's a Hispanic guy, all that stuff. Or Anyway, my point is this, though. He said something that was very in it. He said it, it takes time out of the day and it, it gives some young people a serious existential thing to do. And that's very important at this time, meaning that uh, he wasn't quite saying that war, but the idea that they had to have a cause or they had to do something is very important for people in a leisure and affluent society. That yeah. way you could see that with 9-11, that all of a sudden that whole People forget that woke had a precursor in the 1990s. Right on the verge of 9-11, Jesse Jackson was really, remember that pushing reparations? That was the first we heard of it. And they were really, I mean, I think the David Horowitz Center put out a kind of a, a blast pamphlet against reparations. That was the, the moment right before 9-11. And that had been, ho-ho, Western Civ has got to go. That was the whole 90s cultural revolution. And then suddenly, bam, oh, that's not existential. Taking down the World Trade Center is, and we forgot all about it. And we, we, we turned to what was really important for a while. Right. And that, that, that'll happen again if things get bad here. If Biden continues to be president with the economy and the border and crime, and this rampant shoplift, it's going to, and homelessness, it's going to get like that again. Well, we have the, uh, we have a drag queen singing the national anthem tonight at the New York Mets uh, game here in New York City, Victor, which is not equivalent to uh, crime and, and uh, the destruction of the family, but just yet another sign of, of the uh, degradation of our society. So, hey, Victor, we, we're going to, we're going to, um, talk well i'm going to pose a thing or two for you about the streets of san francisco and dirty harry and we'll do that right after this final important message we're back with the victor davis hansen show i kindly uh, request our listeners if they're interested to visit sybilthoughts.com. That is the place where you can sign up for the free weekly email newsletter comes out every Friday that I write for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. Well, it's really Amphil now. We crunched it together. And we are determined uh, to uh, strengthen civil society. It's vital for our republic. That's why we exist. But the newsletter uh, is a list I, I put together 12 to 14 recommended readings. Hey, I saw this great piece this week by so-and-so. Here's an excerpt. Here's the link. I think you'll like it. That's what Civil Thoughts is. We don't sell anything. We don't sell your name. It's just it's just nice. So uh, CivilThoughts.com. You know, I was thinking when you mentioned the transgendered singer. Oh, yes. Yes. There actually is a legacy. In Latin, they're called the castrati. And I yeah. think in modern Italian, weren't they the castrato? The, the Catholic Church used to use them in the, the middle. The, yes. The, and there was the idea that if you 
castrated uh, a Get young boy. But, yeah. yeah, before they reached puberty, yeah. they were forever fixated or solid solidified at that 13 year at the maximum power of the voice before it changed. And then right. they were in high demand when they were castrated. So the castrati, and even in Roman times, were considered very good singers. I wonder if this person was a castratus in the sense that he'd lost his genitals and he would wow. transition to. Well, I don't I don't I don't know. Every time I see transgendered, I don't know if there's subsets as there used to be, there were subsets called transvestis transvestism and those were just heterosexuals I said changed clothes yeah of the or there was transsexuals who well, actually had the physical I have a feeling that most transgendered are not castrating themselves right Victor to read uh, the, the American mind which is the daily the website of the Claremont Institute uh, has a piece up either today or yesterday that gives um, graphic details of what this means to be a castrati, to turn yourself, you try take off your, you know, lose your member and then try to turn it into a receptacle. And it's um, it's gruesome and uh, it's a lifetime of 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 hell. And if you bitch about it publicly, you get hell then from the transgender community. Also, it's a really, really troubling yeah, it, process. You know, it's, it's very funny because they outlawed it in Europe in the 1850s or 60s, you know, because I know in Italy or, or places, maybe not so much in Germany, with, with places that had a lot of emphasis on opera, for example, if you had a castratus in your family or in Italian, a castrato, and you uh, emasculated him, you know, at, at a very early age, neutered him, then he was a very powerfully a powerful resource as far as singing and where it was choirs or they had great careers and and they could hold notes much longer. And there were families that did it. And then it was com considered barbaric by, I think, the 1870s, the, the sheer shot of castrating the sheer idea of castrating anybody was so abhorrent they just banned them and i don't think we've ever had opera singers like that again that's what that that happened but the idea that you would return to that you know what i'm yeah. saying you'd go back to castration when it was considered one of the cruelest of all operations it's kind of strange well the exquisiteness of a of a a young boy's voice. Uh, so when the when the king got uh, coronated or whatever the hell happened last, or um, Pa Yezu, when the that that note is there's such beauty in it, but uh, to try and turn that into a permanence yeah. by maiming somebody is. Uh, you, you, you remember uh, that stones you can't always get what you want, and the it begins with the Vienna Boys Choir. Singing oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, let's speak let's speak some more about culture, Victor. Two things in this uh, wrap up uh, a, a segment of today's episode. One comes from and they're both about San Francisco and there's a good friend of this podcast. This podcast originated a couple of years ago out of National Review and this is I think it's third iteration uh but it used to be sponsored uh, on occasion by uh, uh Shraga Kawiar, a great friend uh, and his family is just a, a huge fan of of Victor. And he, he contacted me a couple of weeks ago and I had meant to bring it up at the time and I didn't. But it was about 
he's a big movie fan, Godfather, but he's a big fan of uh, the uh, Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood movies. And he had some specific questions, but I, I think a little too specific. But Victor, you know, it's so much about uh, and you think about other movies from the time, like, uh, of course, Bullet. But San Francisco is a is a great set, uh, a great scene for these for any number of movies. And when they, at the time these movies were being filmed, it was also a crazy ass city with um, uh, serial killers and Jim Jones and yep. uh, racist groups and hippies and all this like weirdness and madness. Um, anyway, Victor, we, we have another thing. I want to get your thoughts on basically then, Victor, t- do you have any thoughts about Dirty Harry and those movies? And then we have uh, a, a typical and sad and ugly story from Eli Steele, who's a great filmmaker, and he's the son of Shelby Steele, and they were in San Francisco to uh, make a documentary. And like anyone else that's in San Francisco with a car, they met up with uh, uh, some serious uh, criminality. But we'll get to that in a sec. Victor, any any thoughts about the Dirty Harry series or other movies of San Francisco from what was your youth? Well, the San Francisco of the late 60s and early 70s, when a lot of those Dirty Harry sets were used has the same relation with the San Francisco, the 1950s where you say vertigo was filmed than San Francisco than it does with the current San Francisco. And what I mean by that is the 1950s San Francisco, if you look at movies and sets people, and I can remember being a little boy and my parents, even if we went up to a San Francisco giants game, they made us wear little ties, clip on ties Everybody was well-dressed in the early late 50s and early 60s. And it was just a beautiful city. And then in the 70s, it got, as you say, raunchy. It was not just on Masonic Street or Haight-Ashbury or Smoking Dope or it was just. But it was a, I don't mean, I don't want to say a benign, uh, but it wasn't course and i mean it was violent you had the zodiac and it was out of control and you saw where it was going but it hadn't reached full fruition and then the big tech money came in and sort of straightened it out but this is not we haven't seen this is maybe like the barbary coast of what you read about in 1840s san francisco right on the say 1849 the 50s during the gold rush where they had vigilantes, they had to have vigilantes, and it was just wide open. You can read William Tecumseh Sherman's um, memoirs, and he was a banker in San Francisco in, when he left West, West Point before he became went, re-entered the service. But in the early 1850s, he, he talks about the crime and the need for vigilantes, and it's kind of like that now. It's so far from the vertigo sets what you see today in San Francisco and it's, and we, we thought the 1970s were had really declined, but the 1970s now look like the golden age compared to what we have now. And I don't know, San Francisco is not a very big city. You got to remember it's about the size of Indianapolis. It doesn't have a lot of, it has natural beauty, uh, but it's very densely populated. So all of these pathologies, like in LA, you have more homeless, but it's spread out. And so it's force multiplied. So it's a very fragile place. And when 
and you get you get just a few stupid policies and you can wreck that city. It's really always on the edge. It always was. And you you have to have some sane people. Even in the heyday of the 70s, 80s, you had the San Francisco Chronicle and you had Charles McCabe or Herb Cain, and they were writing stuff that was left, but it was sensible. You know what I mean? Sensible. And not that doesn't exist anymore. And yeah. And so I don't think anybody feels safe in San Francisco. I don't think any business is moving to San Francisco. I don't think any startups says this is the place I want to be. I noticed when I first got to Hoover, say 2003 and then four and five, there were people moving from Silicon Valley because it was so dynamic. They felt the nightlife. They wanted to live in the city. They didn't want to live in Menlo Park or Palo Alto or Mountain View. They moved up there. And that's not true. Now everybody's leaving there. And then you talk to people, but they don't go to conventions there. If the convention is held there, they don't go, but conventions themselves don't want to go there. So when Gavin Newsom just said that was all exaggerated, he was just, when that interview, getting back to that interview, that's not true. He was mayor. He helped destroy the city. And it's destroyed now. And many people say, no, it's not. It's, I, I walk. Nobody did anything to me. Just keep walking six o'clock at night for five nights in a row. Just park your car and see what happens. I uh, Eli uh, Steele was a student of mine at Pepperdine and the uh, master's program when I was a visiting professor there. He's a wonderful guy. He's very talented. He did the Ferguson movie. Remember that Amazon tried to censor Shelby and Eli's movie. And, and uh, I, what killed Michael Brown? Yes. And uh, I was a big fan of Shelby Steele when he did that PBS Bensonhurst. And he had a he had a great career. He's still very active, but he had a mega career. And then when he started to do documentaries about Bensonhurst and show the evils of tribalism on both sides, Italian and everything, and he started to get into complexities. Uh, then the left just said, you can't do that. And the content of our character and all of those essays that he wrote, they just, they couldn't, they couldn't get into that. And he was a, uh, he was a professor at San Jose state and he's not like a lot of people that are in so-called race studies. He was an English lit scholar taught English. And he, for, you know, I, I'd say for, He's he's moved now. He's out of state. Right. But I would say for 15 years, he and Tom Sowell were my two closest friends at the Hoover Institution, maybe my only friend. Yeah. But uh, I, I was very close to both of them. I still am. But he's a he's a lovely man. A and, Eli, very smart and, and Eli's a great guy. And I've done I, I, I do believe their documentaries are really required viewing. Can I just read this, Victor, what Eli yeah. posted on yeah. Twitter? Yeah. Um, you hear how bad San Francisco is? I was filming a shot of my father, Shelby Steele, and in the 10 minutes we were gone, our SUV was broken into and nearly $15,000 of cameras stolen. Called 911 and they hung up twice. Well, Victor, it turns out that over what was stolen was approaching $50,000 in equipment. And then Eli posts an ongoing series of, you know, please hang up, go to the police station. Everyone, everyone that was in the police station at that time, they looked from the pictures looked like there were, you know, a dozen people were there because their cars were broken into or stolen. Talk to the car rental agency. 
yeah, San Francisco, yeah, it hurts. We're going to get 30, 30 cars a day. I mean, it's it's uh, 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 madness. He has had to start a uh, GoFundMe, or he had a friend start a GoFundMe to report you know, help diminish the costs of, but he was there to make a, make a, uh, an important documentary. And I think it would be an important one for conservatives. They'll, they'll release, uh, what it's about in due time. Um, anyway, that's, uh, it's, I would search for, if you're interested, uh, Eli Steele, uh, go on Twitter and look and, and see this story that he lays out tweet by tweet of what, what it means just to, to, to drive in a good neighborhood, yeah, quote unquote, good neighborhood. Yeah, and I, I think he 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 actually tweeted me a personal tweet today, and I think he said that they could see people drive by in a Mercedes with a gun, threatening, or his friend did, threatening people. In other words, don't right. call. Them. And so they were scouting out, and nobody's going to do anything. Nobody's going to do anything at all. They had an exchange. I didn't hear, know if you heard that between. Uh, London Breed, the black female mayor and the socialist city council member who was white, and they went at it. And she played the race card and said, this is just what I basically she wanted to. She's getting pressure from the business community as because she's mayor. And they said, either clean up the mess or we're out. When we're out, there's no city because there's not many left. So she's trying to, in a half-hearted way, at least stop the rampant crime downtown, which is impossible with an underfunded police. And right. and then she's trying to clean up the homeless, which is impossible. Gavin Newsom spent billions of dollars and made it worse. And anyway, uh, this socialist is on. You can get a clip and listen to it. He's saying, she says, don't tell me. You're just a typical white elitist. And he's saying you're just a typical lackey of the business community, meaning homelessness. We've got to have don't dare touch the homeless. And she's saying we have to. But she's using the race card as if she's a victim of his racism. So when you get to that impasse where they're both culpable and they're both the socialist is calling her a capitalist lackey and she's calling the socialist a racist. And the problem is not being solved. And if that's what the antitheses are in San Francisco. They're never going to solve it. And we all know what the we all all know what the answer is. It's to bring back sanitariums and mental right. hospitals. Right. And closely go through all of these people for and then they're going to have to go to a mental hospital. It would be in the long run cheaper. Number two, to the people who are somewhat functional and have no family than it would be to get large areas with small little 200 foot cubicles that have a sink and a bed and are clean and have rows of them with a communal big shower bath uh, doctor dentist a, a little mini city if they want and they can go in there and then have security and keep them out of the t- city. If they break the law, they, you know, you'll say, well, they don't want, this is a free country. They should not, if they break the law, it's not, you can arrest them and they can be sentenced to that place. And then third, they have to have a public relations campaign about families. And they have to inculcate the idea that we've now played around with 60 years of alternatives to the nuclear three generation family. But ultimately 
every family that I grew up with, everyone that I knew had an Uncle Joe or Grandpa, Grandma Mary that had a touch of Alzheimer's or mental illness and the family took care of them. Right. And are they if they couldn't and they were violent, they had to go to a sanitarium. But I can well, remember my, my grandfather saying that his father had uh, got mental illness and they had to commit him to the mental hospital in Stockton. They were very sad about it. And then I had an aunt that was horribly physically crippled. I mean, she couldn't, she was just, terribly ravaged by the polio epidemic of 1917 and and they took care of her for in that living room of the family that she never not didn't spend one day in a rest home until yeah. she and that's what people did and and that's a, that's a, that's a partial solution too all of these people have relatives and maybe the relatives could visit them in a sanitarium or into a secure location or what but you've got to get them off the street because, and you have to say, Victor, they don't have the right to not take vacation, exactly. right? Well, you have to tell them that you're not a vic you're not the victim. The victim is the little twelve year old piece walking down the street and uh gets feces on her shoe. The victim is the mom who has her children in the park and steps on a syringe. The victim is the guy from Provo, Utah, that saves his money up to go to San Francisco and some homeless person smacks him in the head. The victim is the nine-year-old girl is walking with her dad down Market Street and somebody defecates in front of her or masturbate. That's what they are not victims. They're doing things. I've seen it firsthand. And they're doing things that are oppressive and victimizing. They're not victims. And that's just the way it is. And until we change our attitude about that, you cannot let a small number of people destroy civilization and then deify them as the, as victim. And it used to be we had a whole vocabulary. I'm not asking that we go back to that vocabulary of disparagement, but there was a purpose in it, you know. And I can tell you that my grandfather told me in the Selma train station during the 30s, there were hobos and bums and he would go in there and. There were relatives that he had that lost their jobs that were going up and down the rails, and he would get a uh, postcard and say, "You know, I'm your cousin Jerry, and I I go down up and down the Southern Pacific, and I'll be in your town." And he would go in with his old pickup and try to find them, and then bring them out to the farm. And he had bunks in the barn, and they had a, my grandmother cooked a big kettle of soup, and they could stay as long as they want, as long as they got up at five with him. And yeah. helped him irrigate and pick peaches or plum. Well, there was I, I was while you were talking, I was looking. I thought I saw it in the today's New York Post, but there was a, a, cur, a curve. I think it was a Korean family with a pregnant mother was uh, shot in the head and she died. And her eight she was eight months pregnant. The baby uh, died. The husband was was shot. I I don't know why I'm thinking it was Iowa, but but crazy. A crazy homeless guy who did it, and he, of course, had a record in a previous state. And yeah, there, there are people that need to be in institutions, um, not only for their own health and safety, but for our health and safety too. Victor. Yeah, just everybody should ask themselves if Mister ne if Mister Penny had done nothing to is it Mister Neely? His name was 
in New York on uh, the, the, the the Michael and Jackson yeah. impersonator. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. If they had done nothing to him, and that person, yes. If that person had have stabbed or killed or strangled one of these innocent people of which he was threatening, would he have been in prison or indicted sentence in prison as long as Mr. Penny will be? I don't think so. He had been out on parole so many times, 45 times, three violent assaults. And that had, that's the problem that we... We're so I don't I don't know where it, we, we we came with a 60s bankrupt idea that was institutionalized in our in the 21st century that we're going to romanticize, glorify the perpetual perpetrator of crimes because of his race or his poverty or his homelessness or his transgender or whatever his ism is. But it's a tyranny. It's a war against the majority. It really is. Right. right. And, and, well, and it's destroying their quality of life. They can't go places. You can, it's a crime to have a family drive up from Tulare and want to go to, you know, to Golden Gate Park and can't do it with their friends right. and safely. Or it's it's terrible for a guy. You know, there's a lot of guys in our area that don't have a lot of Uber money. So on weekends, they go up to they take their private car and they go up to San Francisco and they sleep in it and they. They try to do Uber for two days, 200 miles away with it. They used to. I don't know if they can do it anymore. And I would talk to them when they get their windshield broken and then destroy it. They'd lose everything. And nobody cares. It's really cynicism by our elite that that gave us this whole oh. paradigm. It's, it's 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 also ideological, Victor. I've mentioned this before, but if if you if you if you say that homeless person needs help, that means you've established a norm, right? And yeah. if you're going to establish a norm for this, well, maybe uh, that means establishing norms is is permissible. And the whole project of the left is to destroy norms. So how could they establish a norm that, that would help and save the, the homeless person well, and not get caught up in the, in the hypocrisy? You, you can find uh, all of this and Michel Foucault's Madness and Civilization, or I think he had a book called Discipline and Punish, or The Order of Things, or The History of Sexuality, any of those books. And the whole central thesis is there's no norms. It's all relative, and it's all based on wealthy, powerful people constructing fake laws or fake norms to oppress other people. And that's there's no natural law. There's no semblance between a penalty for theft and what theft does to a society or murder or assault or sexual norms, any of that. And so, you know, this idea that heterosexual is culpable, well, you have no civilization unless people have children and you can't raise children with one parent. You just can't do it. It's very hard. Some people can manage, but it's very difficult. Right. So over, and it's not Victor's idea, it's 7,000 years of civilization or 2,500 years of cognizant civilization that were self-reflective and wrote about it. And you can read it in Greek and Roman literature that a man and a woman and a marriage union and children are the ideal body politic for civilization. But if you say that, and if enough people do that, if enough people do that, then if a person's gay and doesn't want to get married or uh, people don't want to have children, that's fine. But that can't be the norm because then your right. society will not be 
demographically viable. So what we've done is we've forgotten that you have to have a majority that follows the rules, that doesn't shoplift, that stands for the flag. And that majority has got to be pretty large. And then if they do that, then you can tolerate in nineteen in the 50s or the 40s these dissidents. But if you start to romanticize and glorify the exception and you destroy the rule, then you have no there's no stability. And that's what's happened. There's no core. It's uh, Yeats, 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 funny, Yeats, uh, yeah. you know, f- famous poem, The Center Won't Hold. It right. doesn't hold. There's not enough of us in the center. And so the aberrant become dominant because nobody is enforcing norms. Nobody lives up to them. Nobody's telling a child that's in high school, if you graduate and you get a good job, you should buy a house, you should get married, you should have two or three kids. You don't mean that you have to. That same teacher can say, if you're gay, you don't want to, that's fine too. But you've got to at least give the equal message that there is such a thing as a desirable norm. And that is what keeps civilization going. If you can have a brilliant gay painter or gay writer, that's all predicated on the guy that has three kids. He and his wife bought a home. They play by the rules. They don't break the laws. And they have eight or nine grandchildren. The society reproduces itself with certain customs and protocols. If you don't have that, you have nothing. Well, you can't ha- you can't have people on the periphery than writers and eccentrics and bo- eccentrics right. and bohemians. You make <laughs> right. you can't can't do it. So that's what we have to get back to. That that guy that everybody insults, sort of like I was sitting at Casa de Fruta and there was just average people came by and I was talking to them. Guy with a truck, guy who's an engineer. Just they're the people that keep everything going. Or when I'm out here in Selma and I fill up at what I call the arena, the gas station that's 10 cents cheaper. And I see all these Mexican-American people and I talk to them and what are you doing? Oh, I'm on my way to Mendota. What are you going on the way to Mendota? Oh, I'm going to give a propane delivery. Oh, what are you doing? I have a night shift at the nurse. I just got off from the hospital. That's the kind of people that make yes. it make it go. It's not. It's yeah. not it's sad. But it's made, not the made, made it go during uh, COVID. Also, while yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely, yeah. it wasn't. Anyway, we we've glorified the aberrant and destroyed the norm. We're we're Michel Foucault society. He was the heartthrob, you know, of his nineties. Wasn't a dumb person, but he had a very toxic ideology that norms were just artifices to ex- to exercise and gain and and hold power anyway well one last thing victor uh mentioned before again eli and and shelby and the last documentary they they made was uh what not who what killed Michael Brown, I re- strongly recommend it. It's not only a look at the what happened in Ferguson, but Shelby uh, gives a, a much uh, uh, in-depth look at the destruction, willful destruction by um, liberal experts to destroy black communities in St. Louis and other uh, cities thriving, maybe not too rich, but still thriving communities. What would you, what would you do? What would you do if you were Tom Sowell or Shelby Steele and you have devoted your entire life, not to black studies, but to literature or economics? But once you mastered those 
those disciplines, you also applied it to race relations. And you knew in your heart from your research and the way you grew up that there were certain norms that were essential for every society. And you were going to, you saw progress that was reaching parity in the black community before the great society. It was slow, but it was, it was. And then you saw a, largely a group of white liberals who had utopian ideas about what was good for black people. And they were going to force that down the nation's throat, but they were never going to live with black people. They were never going to put their kids with black people. And then this is what I'm getting at. And then they were going to demonize Shelby Steele or Clarence Thomas or Tom Sowell or Tim Scott as sellouts. You know, there's something very evil, very, very evil of Barack Obama who went to prep school, who was half black, who had grew up with a banking grandmother, who went to Occidental and goofed around, went to Columbia, goofed around, went to Harvard, goofed around, got a professorship at Chicago, goofed around, and had it made telling Tim Scott, who grew up in the rural South at the closing days of Jim Crow, that he's not authentically aware of what black people suffer. And this is from a man that, I guess, did his podcast at Colorama, Martha's Vineyard, Hawaiian Mansion. <laughs> so that that's what that's yeah. kind of why all of us should be really protective of what a Clarence Thomas went through or Thomas. So it must be one of the worst things in the world to know that you're smarter than these very wealthy white people who are who are calling you inauthentic because you know what will help black people the most and you care more about black people than the black elite, the Al Sharptons, the Don Lamont, all those people. You yeah. have to live with that, that you're better than these people. And yet these people criticize you that have never had any experience and must make a person very angry, but they're not angry people, but it would make me very angry. Yeah. Well, you're not allowed to escape the uh, white uh, liberal plantation. Um, so many uh, people have said, Victor, 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 when you want to look at the source of all of our maladies, whether it's the climate change intolerance or letting forests burn for our own good, supposedly ecological reasons, or the diversity, equity, inclusion, or the ESG corporate stuff, there's... It's not hard to find it. The pathway leads back to a wealthy, white, usually academia or media enclave. And they're usually right. Left-wing, affluent, media, law, academia, utopian, but very selfish and always ensured that their bromides will never impact them or influence them. Mm -hmm. That's the whole story of America in the last 40 years. Yeah. Well, Victor, um, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us yet again and listening, no matter what uh, platform uh, they use. Uh, those who use uh, Apple or iTunes can rate the show from zero to five stars. We have a 4.9 plus average, and uh, that means <laughs> practically everyone's given it five stars. So thanks very much. Those five stars are for Victor. If they could give 10 stars of Victor, you give 10. I know you would. One uh, comment we'd like to read that somebody left. 
uh, that wrote, uh, wrote, we read them all, but here's one uh, from uh, Apple and it's from Pamela 7644. Your podcast loved your show today. This is from a few weeks ago. It bothers me that General Eisenhower seems so intent on punishing Patton, more so than letting his genius win the war. That is the impression I get anyway. Sammy is great. Love your shows together. Pamela, 7644. She is right. She is right, because Sammy is great. <laughs> so are you, Victor. So. Don't give Sammy too many big ideas. <laughs> uh, hey, Victor, you take care. Thanks very much, folks. Thanks so much uh, for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye.